This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our show today on this, once again, Ahanu, lovely San Diego morning, although it has been getting warmer by the day, but it's still pleasant. I'd say we're still up in the upper 70s and 80s compared to some of the storm warnings I've been seeing on the East Coast with those tremendous thunderstorms and winds and all sorts of crazy things they have up on the East Coast. Are you missing it, Ahanu? Well, you know, my thoughts go to the fact that the weather is so dependable here in San Diego. And being dependable is something that is missing in a lot of people's lives. We we look to people to be dependable, and especially we look to fathers to be in, dependable. And I know my father wasn't dependable, and we're coming up on Father's Day tomorrow on the 15th of June in the United States. It's different in Europe, of course. But my thoughts go to the father figures that are out there, and everybody looks to an occasion like this to be dependable, to be predictable, to be solid, to be something that they can they can hang their hat on. And it's my experience that a lot of fathers fall short of this kind of thing. Not like the weather, of course, that's just so dependable here. You can predict for years ahead that it's going to be sunny, uh, what, 364 days of the year here in San Diego. <laughs> I wish my father had been like that. Well, now that's an interesting perception because, as you know, there'll be many people today who will be celebrating their wonderful fathers, or tomorrow anyway, and uh, my own father was an interesting character. He wasn't much for a really in-depth conversation. In other words, he wasn't the kind of guy I could go to for advice, but he was very nurturing in other ways. You know, he was Italian. He did a lot of the cooking. He loved cooking. He loved um, giving of himself in that way. Or he'd slip you a few bob, you know, when you needed it, when mom wasn't looking. Um, you know, if you came in late, he wouldn't say anything. So he was a, actually a real sweetheart in many, many, many ways. But where we couldn't approach him uh was in in some of the things that you go through as a teenager and he had his own uh, perceptions about what girls should do and boys should do and definitely it was there was an imbalance there where boys got to do things that girls weren't allowed to and he was raised Catholic so that took a, a real predominating role on what you could say or what you could share. But, you know, he's passed on now, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, at least for me, when my dad was, when my dad was dying, that, uh, you know, I went right back to how I was as a little girl. I, I started calling him Poppy, and, um, you know, started calling him Poppy, and I went right back to that's what I used to call him when I was small. So, 
you know, somehow when they are leaving the planet, you know, you kind of revert back into this childhood place. And I know it wasn't that way for you, though. You know, you, did, you didn't have a good relationship with your dad. So when he died, you know, I think you've shared with me that you had an attitude of, you know, who cares? Is that true? Well, you know, here's the thing. We're, uh, <laughs> I'm very cautious about presenting a negative attitude to a lot of people who are listening to us about Father's Day. And really, I think it's an absolutely tremendous occasion. But what I suspect, though, from my own experience is that the impression of how male children should be and how they should grow up into fathers, I think, has been tainted a lot by what we have learnt in terms of uh, like a, a, a one world order type of agenda. In other words, we're still in the throes of that old masochistic male dominated patriarchal type of an attitude. And I think that the sooner that changes, the better. Now, that's not to say, of course, that it goes, it swings, the pendulum swings all the way into the opposite side where it's totally matriarchal. No, I'm, I, I love the balance in all things. I love the balance of male-female energies. I love when um, a relationship is well-balanced in terms of the male and the female interaction. And it's only that that I'm pointing out that was missing in my interaction with my father. Because he was... He wasn't a, a male role model. He he died an alcoholic. You know, he had his own problems. I've totally forgiven them. But in terms of how that gets handed down in your genes, I grew up with the perception that the male was dominant, that the man did not, certainly did not cry, because that was a sign of weakness. And I believe those are very, very negative attitudes to be carrying around. So... It's that that I want to tackle today. It's that that I want to be able to to get across, that men are changing. We've witnessed it in the various programs and courses and workshops that we do. We've witnessed men turning up, men being more courageous now spiritually, intellectually, and emotionally than I've ever seen them in the past. And I think this is an absolutely marvelous development. I really love that when a man is willing to be vulnerable, but at the same time shows an inner courage. I think it's an absolutely beautiful thing. And it's that that I celebrate on Father's Day. Well, that's very well said. And we could probably have another show, Ahano, just on that topic in particular, just men and women and how they interact and communicate and relate. That might be an entirely different show, but we want to keep the focus today on the fact that tomorrow is Father's Day. And unfortunately, my daughter is also graduating college tomorrow, and I think the day will be taken up with the focus on her and her celebration. So the fathers in this family, anyway, might get the short end of the stick. I wondered when you said unfortunately. It's not unfortunate that she's graduating. It's no, marvelous. it's that. It's but that. The, the men might just take a back seat. <laughs> yeah, they'll take a back seat. We'll it's, see how that transforms. Because I know for my daughter, Janae, she's worked for, I think, five plus years now to get her Bachelor of Science in Environmental Systems. And it's been a rough road. And um, she definitely wants the attention on herself tomorrow. <laughs> so so uh, anyway, so... 
Ahanu, you do have some things to share today about your own um, process as a father. And it needs to be said that Ahanu uh, was married before. I am not the fa- uh, the mother of his children. So when he, he does speak about his own children, um, it was at a time before him and I got together. But go ahead, Ahanu. You wanted to focus on a particular aspect of this today. Well, it's, I do. And I'm, I'm focusing on this because everything we do in our lives makes us who we are. I mean, they say, you know, you are what you eat or you are what you wear, or, but we, we believe you are what you think. And if you grow up with these attitudes, the negative as- attitudes, especially around men, then that can lead to a lot of difficulties either from a woman's point of view or from a man's point of view. But I can only speak from the man's point of view. And I certainly feel up until recently that I got the wrong end of the stick. You know, as I said, I, I, I felt that I didn't have a good adult male fatherly role model. And But then I did set out to change that when I had my own children. I absolutely did a vow that I was breaking the mold and I did and I was an absolutely marvellous father even though I say so myself really really wonderful father I read to my children I indulged them I obviously with with some sense of fixing things and making things right and I did that and I did that very successfully however there were a few things that way way back though that affected me and one of them actually gave rise to my new book called The Reincarnation of Columbus, which is a true epic voyage from the pain and sorrow of a father's grief to the new world of forgiveness. And what actually happened was my first child died when in in the cot, in the crib as known in the United States, when he was four months old. And there was no sound, no struggle. And a post-mortem failed to show an adequate cause of death And in the absence of any diagnosis, the recorded cause of death was sudden infant death syndrome or crib death, as is more commonly known in the US. And he was a perfectly healthy, thriving four month old. The fact that he died on my birthday seemed to intensify in some cruel way the recurring pain that I suffered on every anniversary of his death. Now, I wrote that book primarily from my own need to journal about my feelings to help release myself from the deep-seated pain and guilt that began to rot me from the inside from the moment of his death. And it was a a journey of self-discovery. It was an account of the profound effects that the death of my infant had on my life as an adult male. And it tells in graphic detail the results of buried emotions on family, friends and my business relationships. And it is a painful and sometimes desperate story of my struggle to move out of mediocrity into a life that was deeply searching for a sole purpose. And it was many times, of course, during the writing of that book that I questioned the logic of reopening the wounds of grief. And as I wrote and reread the words, I constantly relived the horror of the experience and the feeling of abandonment that I had come through. And I began to recognize that what was actually happening was it was the maleness in me. It was that part of me not wanting to cry, but yet at the same time needing to cry. 
And it was that male part of me not wanting to break down or to be vulnerable or not wanting to accept mortality and certainly not wanting to accept my baby Ryan's death for what it was. So this is the part of the maleness that I want to address today, that part that doesn't allow itself to be expressed, doesn't allow to touch emotions, doesn't allow to be clear about what we're actually feeling. Now, Ryan's death resulted in the loss of my business at the time and several other subsequent businesses, which brought my family and I to our financial knees, and it stretched my relationship with his mother inevitably to divorce. But this true story is primarily about a man's struggle with guilt and the coming to terms with that loss. It is definitely a father's pain, a father's deep core wound. It's a man's struggle because I believe that, like me, many men bottle up their feelings just as I did. And what I did in the book was I documented the ruinous effect that that old male approach to grief had on my life. And in doing so, I hope it goes some way to healing the the malaise, let's call it, or the mediocrity, the, the buried pain, the unforgiven, the unsaid, the hidden hurt that's in fathers and mothers and all those that are left behind after the death of a loved one. And certainly men must relearn to cry. Well, Hanu, that's very powerful, very powerful indeed. And uh, I'm speechless. I thought you were going to continue on. You caught me off guard, and I was just listening intently. And it is a painful experience. But, you know, you are right in that we never really explore it from the um, viewpoint of a male. And I'll just mention that when I was uh, 20 years old, my older brother died in a car crash over in Guam. He was in the Navy, and he was the oldest. He was 22. And, uh, you know, my dad, he did cry, but I just remember that it was never spoken about. I never knew anything about what he thought about it, what he, you know, he he never shared any sort of feelings with it. So, you know, where my mother, on the other hand, it was all about my mother because she, she went into this horrible depression, as would be normal, and ended up in a mental hospital for many years. But Dad never spoke about it, and you wonder about that silent suffering so do you feel that you you did you did you suffer silently uh, and try to were you just concerned about your wife at the time or what was really going on Yeah there was a huge amount of what you call silent suffering and the reason for that was that old male approach to emotions it 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 didn't seem right that I would express myself Now on the other hand by comparison she, my wife she was she was all over the place. She was crying at the drop of a hat. The tears flowed right, left and center all day, every day. It's like as if there was this flood of tears. But I could see how that was a relief, how that was necessary, how that was our human way of dealing with it. On the other hand, I chose to bottle it all up. I chose to keep it inside. I thought that for me, I thought that was the right thing to do, to be strong, you know, to to 
not be seen to cry, to be practical and sensible and all of that, and not deal with the the trauma, not deal with the huge grief and that desperate sense of loss that was there. So uh, what I'm saying is it's so important to move away, for men to move away from that old view that we must bottle things up, that we must not cry. Because I think when we celebrate Father's Day, I think that's the father that I want to celebrate. I want to celebrate the real courage, courageous father. I want to celebrate the one who is willing and able to stand up and be vulnerable and be true to himself on all levels, not just as a wage earner, not just as one who can fight or kill or, or defend a family. No, I'm talking about the courage to be able to be true to the true human male in all its aspects. And that's an absolutely amazing achievement. And, you know, I I can say that over the years, as I mentioned earlier on, there haven't been many men, in my opinion, that have been able to rank at that level. But certainly in the last number of years, they have come on hot and heavy. And more and more men are actually coming up to the plate and really, really being true and dynamic fathers and men. And I think it's a really, really wonderful thing. And, you know, I'm not going to go through names or lists, but everybody will know of some of the famous names in recent history, too, of real men. And I say real men, not in the sense of that male, female, sexual type of uh, uh, view, but real men in, in the sense of the word that I'm talking about. And I think that's changing and it's happening. And <laughs> I do know as a woman, you know, that being brought up by a Catholic mother who programmed me to believe that all men really care about is sex. I was quite shocked uh, when I got much older and realized that men actually could really love another person or could have strong feelings like a woman can. And I think that's, that's even a place to start. And then, you know, you do talk to men and you find out that men are holding all of this grief and pain. And I remember years ago, I went to a workshop. Um, I forgot the name of it now, but it was a workshop that was kind of devoted to helping fathers heal their grief when they got divorced. And this is another aspect of it that we tend to think that the father just goes off and he no longer has the responsibility of the children in the same way and he's out there having a great time. But I remember when I went to that workshop, I was shocked at the grief I saw of the fathers who could no longer be with their children every single day and share with them or they were definitely getting the losing end of the stick uh, in a lot of ways. And that's not to say that there aren't men out there that are vindictive and, you know, do disown their children after and don't take up the responsibility. But there were just as many, though, that were genuinely grieving over the fact that their homes were now uh, broken up and different. So even you yourself have gone through that in your own life, Ahano. So do you want to talk about that at all? Well, what I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, Angel Rose, and uh, pray that it's okay with our listeners, 
that I read a chapter from my book, The Reincarnation of Columbus, and it's chapter 10, it's the cemetery. Now, it's about five pages, so do bear with me. There are some very, very important points that come out in this particular chapter about men that I'd really like to cover today. So, well, shall I do that, Angel Rose? Go ahead. It might sound like cemetery. <laughs> you said, how do you say it in Irish? Cemetery. Cemetery. It just, when you say it fast, it's like, what did you just say? Okay, so yes. cemetery. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because some of the names that are in here are Irish names. And right. One of them, for example, is Shangana Cemetery. So when I mentioned that, <laughs> people would wonder, what is that Shangana? It's actually an area of South County Dublin that was given by one of the kings of England to a, a local loyal supporter and uh, it covered all the areas of South County Dublin and uh, beautiful areas in the in the Dublin mountains right down to the coast at Dunleary. And uh, it was still in the hands of the same family up until the 1970s when there was a fire that burnt the main house and they sold off the lands for development and so on. But that's Shangana and uh, there's a little cemetery there where Ryan is buried. So let me take it from that point. The rain had stopped, but no sun shone through to brighten our darkened souls as we approached Shangana. The short road up to the cemetery had died quickly in the stiff, cold breeze coming off Dublin Bay, but the wet tracks of our car remained on the road, as if attaching us in some way with the place of our departure, the very spot where we had put Ryan into his coffin only thirty minutes before. We parked at the gates of Shangana Cemetery as if on cue, Brindle and I both got out of the car and into the back seat. We sat there, savouring the last moments in silence, with Ryan in his small white coffin across our knees. Jolting me from the depth of my sadness, Brindle whimpered, There's not a tree in sight. That's very sad. Ryan loved to watch the trees blowing in the wind. Did you know that Ryan's oak tree is also dead? I whimpered back. Just like him, it flourished for four months. And then it just died too. You're kidding. No, for real, it just died. I meant to tell you. Isn't that the strangest thing? I should have known, Brindle said. What with sad Sam and Columbus and now the dead tree and those other things, there have been too many strange coincidences during the last four months. That little tree was an American white oak, the state tree of both Illinois and Connecticut. It was supposed to be a symbol of strength and independence. I fought hard in my mind to see the significance of this, or if there were indeed any coincidence. There certainly was no strength now, only weakness, and death had taken the place of independence. Why would a tree die at the same time as Ryan? Is there intelligence there, or more morbidly, some depraved connection that would deny us also the pleasure of a tree in his memory? I put the thoughts aside and moved Ryan's coffin over onto Brindle's knees and got out of the car to look around. There was nobody waiting for us, nobody to receive us, nobody to grieve with us. Anyway, I needed to think. What did she mean, coincidences? I stared through the cemetery gate. Shangana was a new cemetery where the headstones were laid out in neat criss-crossed rows with small bunches of shrubbery at the ends and corners of the lines. There were several tarred paths, G 
geometrically dividing the graves into plots suitably named St. Michael's, St. Mary's and St. Joseph's. St. Michael's caught my eye. I was born in St. Michael's Hospital in Tipperary, in house number 22, in a street called St. Michael's Avenue. Ryan was taken to St. Michael's Hospital. Was this one of these coincidences that Brindle spoke of? In my meandering mind, I vaguely wondered why St. Michael kept coming up for me. I took a mental note to look him up. Brindle was right. There were strange things going on. Along with St. Michael, I was beginning to see other little synchronicities that now began poking in earnest at my vain, shallow understanding of life. Suddenly I remembered the time of Ryan's death was 11-11. My birthday was the 11th day of the second month, two elevens. I was born in house number 22, which was two elevens. Ryan died on the 11th day of the second month. I glanced at my watch. It was 11-11 a.m. My God, it's time. Suddenly, cars arrived and soon people appeared from everywhere to join us. I returned to the car and I stooped to take the coffin from Brindle. My eyes caught hers in a fleeting glance. Her expression was empty, yet it said all that was welling up inside me. This is the end, she said, the saddest end. And the tears dropped in little beads onto the coffin. I wish I was not left behind, she said sadly. Me too. I thought of how grateful I was that Brindle was there. I closed the door of the car. Brindle got out and came round to join me. A small procession formed behind us, and we began our short walk to the gravesite. Slowly, with our small white coffin in our arms. As I walked along the lines of loved ones, through the midst of memories just like mine, It was as if the world stopped turning. Time stood still to watch and wait as I neared the hole in which Ryan would be buried deep in Mother Earth herself, deep down in the darkness. My attention was caught by a fast movement in the sky to my left. Starlings. I pondered the word starlings. Earthlings meant of the earth, so could starlings mean of the stars? Were they trying to tell me something? Could we all be from the stars? Was Ryan gone back to the stars? Never before had I contemplated such a possibility. My world was three-dimensional and life only existed here on earth. Indeed, now it only existed here in this cemetery, here in my present circumstances. There was only right here, right now, here in my body. But life didn't exist for Ryan in his body, the thought brought me right back to raw reality. I was burying my son. The grass over the graves ran the length of each plot to allow the lawnmowers to keep the grass cut tight up to the straight lines of headstones in one passing. A short walk down the centre, and standing in a plot to the left, two grave diggers stood leaning on their shovels, waiting to complete what was to them an everyday task of shoveling clay onto other people's loved ones, all very efficient, very perfect. There was silence. A sorrowful heaviness hung in the air. It felt like an eerie calm before the storm, except that for Brindle and I the storm had already wreaked its damage and we had the remains in our arms. One of the gravediggers approached and took our precious possession from us, 
I felt a click of my neck as if my head was being wrenched from my shoulders and I reluctantly let go, my fingers holding on as if to remember the last touch of the white wood before I said goodbye forever. The crowd formed a circle round a small hole in the bare earth. Brindle's mother was holding Brindle on my left. Joseph was holding them both. Several of Brindle's school friends stood beside them. My own family stood on my right with some distant relations and others I didn't know. I looked across the grave at the crowd and all I saw was a wall of sadness dripping with tears. My body was frozen in the moment. The priest looked at me and asked, was he baptised? He had presided at all the family's engagements and wedding ceremonies, in fact, all of the religious affairs of our family all through the years, all except the baptism of Ryan. What was I to believe any more? Does baptism work? What do other cultures or religions do? Is Ryan now in some never-never land, some purgatory? Is he suffering because I didn't have him baptised? My mind ran into all the possibilities, all the questions that had no answers. It was filled with all my preconceived ideas and what I had been led to believe from my earliest memories until now. You'll make yourself crazy with the nonsense you think. It dawned on me that the voice I was using to think with, the voice in my head was me, but it was removed somewhat. It was speaking about me as if I was separate. It said, you'll make yourself crazy. Who are you? Who's speaking? The priest broke through my brief encounter with myself, using his priestly pretend cough, well rehearsed to capture the attention of his congregation. The old priest leaned forward over the tiny grave, and with tears in his eyes he said, Brindle and Kevin, you have an angel in heaven. Brindle's face grimaced. My mind flashed back to the hospital chaplain, who just two days ago had stabbed her with the same comment. I knew the priest genuinely believed what he was saying, but the thoughts of an angel anywhere, even in heaven, did nothing for me this time, either. I don't want an angel in heaven, I just want my baby back, I thought to myself. I didn't want to believe in heaven or hell, but I was enmeshed in it now. I was in a place of death, and I found myself being drawn into the idea of the attractiveness of a heaven. The priest opened his arms, palms facing upwards as if to implore heaven, and then he opened a small leather-bound missile, flicked the red page marker aside, and continued, this time a little more vociferous. A reading from the first epistle to the Thessalonians. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Archangel Michael, take this little one into your protection. Never taking his eyes from the coffin, he mumbled other prayers and then he went silent. His lips were moving but no sound came. All eyes were downcast, waiting, but I watched him. I watched his every move, noticed his every gesture and picked up his every word. I was seeking consolation in his authority, in his relationship with God, in him as a father. It was a relationship I didn't have, and it seemed Ryan didn't either. Or maybe he did, and for the first time in my life I needed to find out more about it. Who was this God that would cause such suffering? Why would a loving God make death necessary at all? How could any God make a child die? My entire Catholic upbringing, my schooling, 
my time as an altar boy in St. Michael's Parish Church. There's that St. Michael again. All was being swept away in a rush of disbelief, a rush of agnosticism that sent shivers of fear up my spine. I had no alternative but to believe what I had been told. I had no other story, no other teaching, no other possibility, and no other authority to rely on to inform me about death. After what seemed an eternity, the ageing priest shuffled to the side and picked up a small blue plastic bottle of holy water from Lourdes. He reached out in a sweeping gesture, sprinkled holy water on the box and on the crowd. He reached towards us, and when the first sprinkle didn't reach us, he sprinkled again and again, until I felt the cool splashes, like raindrops, appear to magically cleanse me. The holy water ran down like tears on my face, and I wiped them away. I, a man, must not cry. Putting on a solemn face, the two grave diggers lowered the small white coffin into the child-sized grave, and soon every thump of the brown clay hitting the wooden coffin reverberated in our ears and echoed around the cemetery. I felt bones click in my neck, as if my neck had once been broken. I looked across the mound of dark earth at Joseph. Joseph doesn't look as dapper as usual. This will kill him, and me. We could all go together. I feared Ryan's death would kill him, and my thoughts went immediately to Brindle. How would she cope with a double blow if her father died as well? And what if I died too? Would she miss me? I watched Joseph clench his fists in anger, and then burst into crying, in a way only an old man can cry. He was usually quite vocal and expressive, but even at that early stage it was quite evident to me that this expression was controlled. It was obvious that, like me, he was bottling it all up inside too. Brindle clung to my left arm and leaned over the grave. She tossed the little toy sad Sam onto the coffin before the last thump of clay covered the white box forever. In minutes there was nothing but a small mound of clay to mark the spot where baby Ryan was buried. I looked around the crowd. All the women were crying and holding each other. All the men were stone-faced, unmoved, without tears. What is this difference, this expression of grief that is so different in men than in women? Should it be the same, but men have just stifled it? I will not cry. I looked at the priest who had tried his best to make us believe that there was a deeper meaning to all of this, that we should accept it as part of a divine plan. He had invoked the great Archangel Michael to protect Ryan and asked God to take him into his bosom. I wondered if that was all just sentiment, or could there be more to it than that? Was there ever such a person or a spirit as Archangel Michael, and was he still around? Did he really do battle with evil, and if so, why wasn't he winning? It seemed to me that evil was everywhere. Suffering and death was surely not part of God's plan. So why wasn't God's plan working? I thought of all the good works being done all over the world, the charities, the foundations, the evangelizing, the social work, the philanthropy, and realized none of that would be necessary if we were in a loving world. It would not be necessary if evil were not triumphant. I thought of what I could do, but it seemed too enormous, 
too big a task to change the world, especially now. Maybe someday. But right now, I was exhausted, drained of all will and energy. There was nothing more I could do in my life to bring in more love or to remove any evil from it. It seemed there was nothing more to do at the graveside either. Uneasiness came over the small crowd. Not knowing exactly what to do, some sneaked across the graves of long-dead strangers to their waiting cars. Others shuffled across the fresh clay to where we stood, shaking hands and offering condolences. Many shook my hand and kissed me, asking in the same breath, How is she coping? They all ask, How is she coping? I didn't begrudge all this attention to Brindle, but I did feel put aside. It seemed to me that in these circumstances all the support from family and friends was always directed at the mother. And how is your wife? Is she over it yet? Is she managing all right? Is she this and is she that? I muttered to myself. Nobody is asking me how I am. Did men not suffer at all? Do our feelings not matter? These people really don't care how I feel. It's all a facade. This whole thing is just a formality to them. In their own little worlds they were all that mattered and I was a lonely stranger standing by a grave. They are lonely too. I knew I needed comfort and I couldn't get it. All I was getting was a superficial handshake and a murmured sorry for your troubles. These people were just as lost as I was. They were as ignorant of life and death as I. So I cast myself into the net of the ignorant with them, the net of the unknown, to be caught up in mediocrity and pain and suffering and death without knowing, without understanding, without knowledge of any other way out. It seemed as if everyone was trapped in a net of survival, a net of superficial living, a net of pretense, a net of nothingness. And where was this fisher of men, the one who cast his net to catch all the lost souls? I am in a net, but it isn't saving me. It's enmeshing me in a life of mediocrity, of pain, of loss, and suffering and sadness. I can't get out, but neither will I cry about it. I had decided yesterday to put on a false front, to hide the devastation that was beginning to rot my insides, and to protect me from people's lack of interest in how a man feels. I was witnessing for the first time the glaring imbalance of how men and women cope with grief. I was told men don't cry, men don't have feelings. Sentiment in men was a weakness. It seems everybody else was told the same thing. Slowly the cemetery cleared, leaving just our closest family. I felt a sense of comfort in them, but in the same moment I felt as though I really didn't know any of them. A strange distance came over me, as if there was me and the rest of the world. I loved them, but they didn't really know me, nor did I really know them. What was this loneliness that I was feeling? Was it depression? Or was it just the effect of grief? Would I feel attached again to the world soon? How long would it take? Then it struck me that as much as I loved and played with Ryan in his four short months, I really did not get to know the individual we called Ryan either. Ryan's life was like a rosebud plucked before we could enjoy his summer days or the full bloom of his maturity. I always thought that there would be time for us in the future. 
There is no future if Ryan is dead. If Ryan is dead. I began to withdraw into my contradictory feelings about myself. Was I a real man? Was I meant to cry? Should I be feeling this loss? Was it right for me to feel lonely and lost? Does every man feel as I do now? Is there anyone here who knows how I really feel? Is there anyone here who recognizes my pain? Will anyone ever know or ever care how I really feel? The graveyard had emptied faster than I thought possible. It was as if everyone, but especially the men, ran for cover, quickly enough as not to seem improper. There was an acceptable norm operating, a part of the human exposure that couldn't be exposed, a front that was just about acceptable in society, a facade of fear buried beneath the surface that caused these people to withdraw, to pull back as a hermit crab retreats into the safety of its shell. They were all afraid of death. That's what it was. They were all afraid of death. Our pain exposed them, made them vulnerable, made them feel stuff, emotions that they didn't want to feel. They didn't really want to share our suffering or our loss. They would all prefer that this had never happened and go back to their mediocre lives, never feeling real, never descending into the depths of their hearts. And just then, as the loneliness fell over me like a creeping darkness, Brindle's second cousin, Clover, came over to me and pulled my head down so she could say something in my ear. She was only eleven years old but she was very aware of the finality of the funeral ceremony. "'Are you all right?' she whispered innocently, emphasising the word you. "'Are you all right?' Had I heard her correctly? Did someone just ask me, was I all right? Was I dreaming? She's just eleven, and she cares. I nodded. She reached again to whisper in my ear, "'If you need anything,' Just ask, okay? I felt encouraged, but my mind was still in a whirl. Our ceremony was over. Our friends were gone. Only a few of our closest family and a stark choice remained. Stay here or go home to an empty house. The eleven-year-old Clover left the graveside with us hand in hand and we walked slowly to the car. Her innocent concern for me meant more than all the sorry-for-your-trouble platitudes and handshakes. It had taken the edge off the bruising that my masculinity suffered in facing the harsh reality of Ryan's death. I began to change my mind about men and about humanity. Wow, Hannah, that was very... Very intense and very emotional, actually. And it's, you know, the thing with death is nobody really does know what to say. That's the problem with it. You know, what can you say? Because it's such a devastating uh, thing altogether. But that was very important, especially having that little girl acknowledge that you were hurting, too. And... You know, it is an insensitivity, I think, that people have toward men. It's just some sort of a subconscious agreement that men are just the way they are and they don't have these feelings. 
So to find out that men do have these feelings and that they suffer greatly is, is really a shock to a lot of people, actually. Yes, it is. And you see, here's the difficulty that I have found. And that is that it's not only men who have this inability to reach down into their hearts and into the emotions. And this doesn't go for every man, you know, don't get me wrong. But in general. But also there is this expectation from women also that the man somehow is immune to these feelings. Now, well, they're supposed to be strong. Ahana. They're supposed to be strong. Absolutely. Now, you see, I'm talking about a different kind of strength, though. You know, and I know our, our listeners will get the subtle levels that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the physical strength or the ability to go out and, you know, build a house or build a road or a bridge or lift heavy stuff. It's not that kind of strength. We're talking about an inner strength. And women expect men to have that, which is a good thing. Well, I'm sorry, they expect men to have the outward physical strength. But the inner strength seems to be lacking in some cases. And as I said, it is changing and it is changing beautifully. But yes, the very act of that little 11-year-old coming up to me and asking how I was. She was the only one who asked how I was. It was like a concern from an angel, really, mm. is what it felt mm -hmm. like. Do you know? That I was valid. I was worth something. My feelings were real. And it was right. a beautiful, beautiful thing that changed the day for me. It really did. Um, well, talk a little bit further, Ohana, about the fact that you didn't express your feelings, you know, like you mentioned that Brindle had an ability to cry at the drop of a hat. She had the ability, which women do have the permission to do. And you didn't. And as a consequence of that, your health suffered later. So tell everybody what actually happened to you. You you did mention that you lost your business, that you know you oh couldn't God, cope yeah. with your business. You couldn't cope with everyday yes, life yes, for yeah. a long time. Yeah. And this was something also that at that point in time, I wasn't intuitive enough to recognize the connection between mind, body and spirit. Do you know, I was growing up very much in a 3D world and I didn't know that the emotions could affect the body. So after a short period of time, and I'm talking just a few months, I got pneumonia. And uh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, not pneumonia, pleurisy, pleurisy. I got pleurisy. What's and the I, difference? Well, I... I <laughs> is pleurisy like a lung collapsing? or? Yeah, I think pleurisy is if, uh, the, where the lungs are collapse and... Um, I think pneumonia is like water in the lungs or something like that. Well, pneumonia is an, an infection. I'm not sure. Anyway, I'm, I'm okay, not go a ahead. medical person. But it was pleurisy that I got. I knew it was. But it was only afterwards that I found out, of course, that, you know, the lungs have to do with water. And water and the lungs are all about emotions. And, of course, right. here was I bottling up all these emotions. So it was inevitable that something was going to happen in the physical body. Mm -hmm. And when I recognized that connection... I, obviously then I was at choice and I was able to make some changes. But that was the first thing. Then some time afterwards, now bear in mind, I had never been in hospital in a day in my life, never been sick. That I was like a horse of a guy in terms of my health, perfect in every way. And the next thing, I got meningitis. And I couldn't figure out, I couldn't understand why this could be possible. 
You know, where was this all this weakness coming from? Why was my body vulnerable? And uh, as I said, you know, slowly, it took a little bit of time, I began to recognize this huge connection between what we think and what we feel and mm. the physical body and our health. And like that, everything changed for me once I recognized that intimate connection, that we are all one, that we're all one being, all aspects of us. And that our thought, thoughts are very, very powerful. So if we're constantly thinking sadness and depression and grief and loneliness and abandonment, that's exactly what happens. And this is why, you know, when we started off talking about Father's Day, I want to focus, even though I've read the sad part, I'm just, it's a beautiful thing, I think, to recognize where you've come from and the influences that these things in the past have made you who you are today. But now, f going forward, the focus, and of course the focus on the book too, changes. Uh, for anybody who's interested and buys the book, they'll see that it has an absolutely glorious, miraculous ending. It's really, really a marvelous uh, twist and turn. I'm not going to give the story away here over the air, but it's a beautiful and amazing change, an amazing twist. It really is an epic journey into the new world of forgiveness and a new world of empowerment. But that's what happened. It's the power of emotion is so strong that it can heal or destroy. Yeah, and this is true. what I think happens in a lot of men. It it destroys. Mm. I think it it bears down. It it crushes over time when it's not expressed, you know. But when it is expressed, as in a healthy father relationship, as we will witness tomorrow for Father's Day all over the world, will be, you know, for, for most people, will be a wonderful and joy-filled occasion. And that's what I celebrate today. Right. What I'd yeah. like to do is yeah. just, there was a little um, author's note that I wrote by way of bringing everything to a conclusion here. So let me just read this real quick. It says that many old attitudes still pervade the mainstream medical professions. And I hope that this book the reincarnation of Columbus changes those old attitudes, especially those preconceived ideas about the impenetrable macho man and the inadvisability of boys and men to cry. I hope it helps bring about a new world view of sexuality towards women and motherhood. I hope it changes our thinking around the purpose of pain and death and helps in some small way to return us to clarity, understanding and joy. I hope it helps us all to move out of mediocrity and into real love and forgiveness for ourselves for the first time for all time. Since Ryan's death, the loss of my family and my business and later all my possessions in the crash of 2007, I have lived in two countries engaging head-on in the major growth of awareness that many are experiencing at this time. I teach and lecture together with my twin flame, Angel Rose, who's right beside me now, on a wide variety of spiritual and planetary topics, along with personal group and planetary and ancestral healing work. My experiences in this book increased my psychic abilities and accelerated my healing. They revealed to me the effect that twin flame couples have as planetary grid keepers, helping to repattern the divine masculine and feminine, and serving to remap ancestral events and patterns on our planet. The death of a loved one impacts each person's perception about life and death in different ways. This is my truth about death and paradoxically how it led to my life. 
My story revealed my life purpose to me. It revealed to me who I am and why I am here. I hope that it will help you find who you are and why you are here. I hope that in reading this, others who are touched by loss will be more open and expressive of their grief than I was. If the pain I relived in writing this book helps even one person to make sense of life or death, or as Henry David Thoreau said when referring to Columbus, it opens new channels not of trade but of thought, then it will all have been worthwhile. That's very wonderful, Ahanu. Very well said. So, we do hope that people are celebrating tomorrow their fathers, whether they're still on earth or not. And if they are on earth, no matter what your relationship has been with your father, I think Ahanu's contribution today has allowed us all to be a little bit more understanding of the programming that men have had up through the years and maybe give them a little leeway if they have been less than communicative or emotionally expressive to us. And he is right, he's, you know, when you make up for it with your own children or even with your grandchildren because um, even my own ex-husband was not a fantastic father, but uh, as the years have gone on and he has changed, he's apologized even to my children for some of the ways he was or wasn't. And uh, and now he's got a grandchild where, you know, but I think this is the point, you know, when we had our topic on love where Source always gives everyone another chance to learn about love, to love themselves and be more loving. There's an infinite number of chances. So we have to keep that in mind and uphold that for each other, I think. Okay, Angel Rose, it does bring us towards the end of our program today. And we have a few little announcements to make. Angel Rose does have a Nakashic record session coming up pretty shortly. Do you want to tell people quickly about that, Angel Rose? The workshop? Yeah, the workshop will be next weekend uh, in San Diego, the 21st and the 22nd of June. So if anyone's uh, still interested in maybe attending that, do go to worldofempowerment.com under the events page and you can register there. Um, It's a lovely group that we've got together so far. It'll be a great little crowd. So we have that coming up and we also have the Akashic Record Workshop coming up in July, I believe it's either the 11th or the 12th or the 12th and 13th of July in Ireland. We're going to be holding that in Butler Castle, uh, Butler House it's called. So that will be absolutely exquisite as well. And we will be teaching our psychic laser course in Ireland as well in August. Unfortunately, we won't be having our Akashic session tomorrow, Sunday due to my daughter's graduation or the following Sunday because of the Akashic Workshop. But do do tune in. I think the next one after that will be the free session, won't it, Ahano? In July. It will be the first weekend in July for the free session. So do uh, sign up for that and you can bring any of your spiritual questions to source. And of course, Angel Rose is 
omitting the joyful fact that her new book has oh, just arrived. <laughs> yes. The, book number two. The Nature of Reality. Is uh, out. Yeah. If anybody wants to purchase that, okay, it's, uh, we'll cover all, it does cover all sorts of questions we've had over the years with Source about reality. And, and that's available from the nature of reality dot I N F O. And of course, our first book, A Time of Change, is at a time of change dot I N F O. And if anybody was interested in the book I was reading from today, The Reincarnation of Columbus, you'll get that at the reincarnation of Columbus dot com. OK, remember, we're on every Saturday morning and next week it could be you. And if you'd like to come on the show and discuss your passion or your spiritual business, contact us too at worldofempowerment.com. So anything else, Angel Rose, before I close? Well, next week on the radio, we will have Chrisana Duran back. We just had her on uh, last week, I believe. She'll be, she wrote us and wanted to continue the wonderful conversation we were having about aliens and hybrids and i think she's going to talk about holographic technology next week so that should be very interesting she's got some interesting ideas also on what happened to flight 370 so tune in to the radio next week okay so until next saturday at 10 a.m pacific time we send you our love our blessings and thank you for listening to ahanu and angel rose on the honest to god series and as we say in ireland slán agus banacht de live galair bye everyone happy father's day mm-hmm.